Welcome to the Pathfinders podcast by VWS. I'm your host, Jenny Stojkovic. Join me in intimate conversations with some of the world's most incredible women leaders in the future of food, fashion, beauty, and technology. We'll dive into their stories, how they built their companies, and how they've dedicated their lives to creating a kinder, more sustainable world. Join us on our journey as we endeavor into this brave new future. You won't believe what's coming next. Hello, everyone. This is Jenny Stojkovic. I am here with the fabulous Michelle Egger, who is the CEO and co-founder of Biomilk. Biomilk is working to create cultured breast milk. Really, really exciting. Now, first off, Michelle, cultured or cell-based? Please tell me. (laughs) So it's cell-based technology, but we early on, we're trying to figure out what to call our product because it's not mother's milk. It's not formula and cultured breast milk seem to be easiest for moms to kind of understand. So while it's not descriptive to the technical community, it makes the most sense to our consumers. Absolutely. All right. Well, welcome. How's it going? Good. Really good. Glad it's Friday. Looking forward to a weekend, but otherwise things are, are going well here in North Carolina. North Carolina. Okay. So I really, really look forward to getting into your story because North Carolina founders, that is not one that you hear too often. I'm sure that is a part of the biomilk tale. So the first thing I would love to start with is a little bit about who is Michelle? What was your life like growing up and how you really started this entrepreneurial journey? Have you always been into food? So are you from North Carolina originally? No, (laughs) no, you can't tell by the accent. I'm a Minnesotan. So not, I don't say y'all. It doesn't even sound authentic coming out of my mouth. So I don't try. And growing up me as an individual, my mom was an environmental chemist. So she was like one of the original scientists making red tide testing assay kits. And she ended up being a stay at home mom for my sister and I. And we like to say she developed two little female scientists because of it. So my sister's a PhD plant biologist, works on, on corn genomics and brilliant. And then, you know, I became a food scientist originally was my path, career path. And still my passion's always been food. And we really credit her to some extent with, you know, growing up, it was why is the sky blue? And we'd get a very detailed explanation of light refraction and how the density of air changed over time and changed the way the waves would move. And that's why you would see different colors versus my dad who ran our our family's small office furniture company who would always be like, you just have to explain it to somebody else. As long as you can convince them of what it is, it doesn't really matter. And I think it was a really good balance because of that. We both as women were really empowered to think about scientific careers. There was never any question of could we or could we not and felt really supported and stimulated in a lot of intellectual ways that I'm sure many other females in this field either had from their parents or are giving to their kids now and thinking about the opportunities women can be afforded in the STEM field. So that is such an interesting backstory because you have both an entrepreneur in your backstory as well as a scientist and you became an entrepreneurial scientist. Yeah. It's really not a surprise that I am where I am to some extent, I think for everyone else but me. I constantly have moments of imposter syndrome where I'm like, really? Are you sure? Like, really me? And I think everyone else around me was kind of like, yeah, like you've 
kind of had two core passions in life, which was food and feeding people, which is where my food scientist background came in. And, you know, my other core passion has always been helping people and especially being interested in how technology interacts with people's lives. And, you know, I think like having two parents who really a pretty good blend in my personality that really describe what I do today. It's fun to talk to them now much more even than when I was like a teenager, because they really do. You know, my dad gets arguing with lawyers about billing prices and understands all of that world. And, and my mom is much more on the how's the lab work going? You know, are you able to get supplies in the era of COVID? You know, questions that I don't think the average mom necessarily of every founder gets to have. That's incredible. I love the fact that you do have somebody in your background that has run a business before, because that's something that we've found is a big gap for a lot of the women founders that we speak to. Having that kind of backbone of somebody that knows how to start something and do it on their own. Yeah, my dad, we didn't always see eye to eye when I was growing up, that's for sure. And we've become much closer as we've gotten, as I've gotten older, and that I really do understand the stress and pressure that he was under more frequently. Then I think as a kid, it was like he traveled a, a wide territory in the Midwest out of Minneapolis and he was gone a lot of weeks. And I didn't really understand like what a commitment that was to pursuing something he really believed in or was working on for his family. And now I have much more empathy for how hard that must have been. And I remember distinctly as a little kid, like he would get up and practice his sales pitch in the mirror when he was getting ready in the morning and in, in our basement bathroom. And, and like as a kid being kind of embarrassed about it and being like, that's such a weird thing. Like as a teenager being like, that's so weird, dad. And now I get it, you know, or he always answered the phone, like, hello, this is Ted. And like, I do that now. I'm like, hi, you've got Michelle, you know, and like, there are lots of mirrored images, I think of that I become more and more like him every day, hopefully in good ways. Oh, that is so funny. I remember my father was in sales when I was growing up and very, very similar. And I remember being a teenager thinking, oh my gosh, you are so embarrassing. (laughs) And now that I'm older, I think, oh my gosh, so many of these, so much of the skill and talent that I think I've picked up and being able to have those persuasive conversations came from a parent that modeled that for me. Yeah. And was willing to, you know, my dad, at one point I was, I had an argument with my sister for a year or two and there were, we were back and forth and and he pulled me aside one, one, one holiday actually. And was like, everyone is your customer, Michelle. Everybody in this entire world is a customer. And if you treat everybody like a customer to some extent, you will build better relationships and you'll have a more foundational experience together. And I was like, my sister is not a customer, you know, like she's wrong. I'm right. Right. You know, the usual. And He's not wrong in that manner that if you do really think about like, how do I build relationships to help others? How do I build relationships to make them feel comfortable, to make them feel like they're correct? And we can have productive conversations about when we don't agree because we have to have this ongoing relationship in some capacity. It is actually pretty successful. So he has more wisdom than I would like to give him credit for. And he can never watch this because he'll milk it for all it's worth and be like, see, you learned so much from me, Michelle, but but it is true. You will hear about it for the rest of your life if he listens to this interview. My father and I in third grade did an online IQ test and he beat me by three points and he's still talking about it all these years later. I love that. (laughs) So it sounds like with your dad gone, you know, women were really role models for you. So a lot of what you probably experienced was women led growing up. Yeah. You know, Minneapolis, where I grew up, is pretty liberal. There are a lot of really technical companies and pretty much everyone's moms or dads around me that I knew had pretty interesting and technical careers, many of them, or maybe had left their career. It was still the 80s, had left their career to go home and take care of kids, but had been, you know, an engineer at Medtronic or an obstetrician or, you know, really 
pretty high powered female careers. And so that was really the norm. Honestly, it wasn't until I left and I went to school at Purdue for food science. And I went to a more traditionally conservative Midwestern part of the region where, you know, people would bring up all the time, like, oh, so many fewer women in engineering or so many fewer women in science. And that hadn't been my early years. I didn't see anything different until I kind of broke out of my bubble and saw, oh, this isn't how, you know, every woman walks into a room feeling an equal in what they do. And, and I think it's important to note, you know, I get asked a lot, like, what is it like being a female entrepreneur, which I'm sure we'll get into more of the grid on, but I don't feel my femininity every day as a part of what I do. I feel my resiliency. I feel my natural confidence and ability in what I'm doing. And it's not to say I don't experience bouts of doubt. I, I absolutely do. But I don't feel that I'm a female entrepreneur. I feel that I'm a resourceful entrepreneur that happens to be a woman. And I think a lot of women or disadvantaged entrepreneurial populations will frequently say that, you know, I don't feel that I am an ex-entrepreneur. I'm an entrepreneur that happens to have this experience that made me who I am. And that makes me a good entrepreneur. Yeah, absolutely. It's really that people first language, right? You are a founder, you are an entrepreneur with that happens to be. And when you put that front and center, it's incredible how different people's views are. Psychologically, when you're putting that people first language, things change substantially in the way that people treat you and the way that you think of yourself. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I, I honestly, like it has had to be pointed out to me multiple times. Wow, that diligence was way harder because you're two female founders. And I'm like, really? I just assumed that's how everybody went through diligence, right? Like those microaggressions or those moments aren't as obvious to me because it just feels like I'm being put through my pace as an entrepreneur, not as a female entrepreneur frequently. Yeah. Well, that's, it's your lived experience. You know, your lived experience, right? Exactly. Yeah. So, all right. So we're going to, let's get to Purdue then. So for those that are listening that perhaps aren't too familiar with the university, can you explain a little bit about your schooling and where that was? And it sounds like obviously the culture was substantially different there than where you grew up. Yeah. So Purdue is in Indiana, which is in dead center middle of the country in comparison to most areas. Basically, all there is is corn surrounding you in every direction, which Minneapolis is also agrarian outside of town, but also like up against the woods of Canada, essentially. So like most of I, my childhood, I spent like out where there's still wolf populations and bears and, you know, really out in the outdoors. And then I moved to Indiana, Purdue, which is like genuinely cornfields as far as you can see and scattered houses here and there. And and I went to Purdue because I really, um, the food science program there is really focused on industry application and really prepares their students to be able to go into roles and hit the ground running, not as an academically trained scientist, but as an applications-based scientist, which is really, again, back to that like business science half and half is really where I wanted to be and, and felt most comfortable. And then the irony is actually I chose Purdue specifically, not University of Wisconsin-Madison, which is our neighbor state or University of Minnesota, because I had no interest in studying dairy. I didn't want to work with cows. I didn't want to work with dairy products. And then ironically, that's where I spent all of my education and then career was in dairy fermentation and commercialization, which I wish I could go back to young Michelle and be like, you love dairy. It's amazing and so complicated and fascinating. And you should have taken the challenge on right away. But dairy is really hard as a food scientist. It's much more technical in a lot of ways. And I very much thought like, oh, I want to work on natural organic bars or things that everybody thinks is so sexy. And at the end of the day, dairy is fundamentally incredibly important for humanity and our growth and development. And it's not for the faint of heart to learn and understand. Do you think that because you grew up in a town surrounded by agriculture, because, and I grew up on the other side of the border, not too far from you in Ontario, in Canada, 
And my entire life, it was farmland everywhere. And it wasn't until I was a little bit older that I started to understand what that agriculture actually was around me. I actually learned recently that my parents live right down the street from one of the biggest factory farms for chickens. And I had no idea because growing up, that's just the way, that's what agriculture looked like. I had no idea what it really was and what was going on. Do you think that that perhaps seeded something in your brain growing up around this food system and and starting to, to actually have experience directly with it? So I was a pretty city kid. I'm not going to lie to you. I was much more of like a hiker outdoors to as much as I had to be with my family who was very into that, including my sister who like has hiked the whole PCT. But I like grew up teaching art classes at the Minneapolis Institute of Arts. I mean, I was pretty, I would say disconnected. I was more interested in food and culinary. I loved to cook, always had desperately wanted to be a chef growing up and was more associated on that side, not necessarily as deep on the supply chain side of things having grown up. But It's interesting, you know, bringing up where food comes from and how it's produced because my mom had been very focused on the environment and all of her work. Like I grew up in a household that recycling was like law, you know, and uh, reusing. I mean, we, gosh, the things like my mom's almost a little sketchy because of it and the things we would reuse and do. And because that was really like, we were not overly consumptive and that was very much the norm, not in like a Portland-y, like, oh, we're trying to be eco-friendly, but in just a, this is how we do this because the planet has limited resources and we want to protect the planet because we care about nature. So I think for me, agriculture, the stark contrast of doing that and then driving through pig feed lots all the way to Purdue and spending time surrounded by, you know, most of the other kids in my program were genuine farm kids who'd grown up on the farm and had been a part of a very different life than what I had, I think was actually the moment where it was kind of this aha of like, I'm really passionate about upfront food side of it, the consumer side, but the infrastructure, the supply chain, the structure around it is actually more important when you're trying to think about systematic change. I think an interesting story that all of us in this community would probably find unique is I remember distinctly when Chipotle started to do their first sourcing, where they would talk about the exact farms they were locating on and the humane practices used. And one of those humane practices was that you couldn't have a certain number of hours per day that the pigs were were restricted, couldn't be out more broadly walking, right? So they're trying to get towards factory farming feedlot without genuinely restricting, like these have to be free range animals exclusively. This was probably like 2010-ish timing. Mm -hmm. And one of my classmates grew up on a hawk farm and she was like, this is all fine and good sounding, but like where I grew up in Indiana, pigs freeze to death at night if you don't enclose them in a barn. And like, have you ever listened to a pig freeze to death? It's the most haunting and horrifying sound. And the idea that something that everybody else is like, this is a great idea. This totally solves the problem. And she was like, no, this doesn't actually solve the problem. Like it gets to the root of what's happening, but it doesn't actually address the systemic issues around it or what farmers are being forced to make trade-offs between. That was, I still distinctly remember, I still can't eat pork at Chipotle, but like it just like distinctly distinctly rang into my mind of, gosh, this is so much more challenging and nuanced. And we can all take an approach of, you just hit a button and fix it and you're done. But that's not actually what farmers are experiencing and how they have to manage these situations and changes in a supply chain that we want to see happen. Wow. Yeah, absolutely. That's the thing. When you move to certain parts of the country, especially if you change your education to a part of the country where there is that predominant industry, there's just so much more that you're hit with. You know, I had similar experiences as well myself because I ended up moving to a part of the country from Canada where 4-H and and all of that was just so embedded in the culture. It was just a totally new world to me. I'd never heard any of those perspectives before. And you can see how some of the messaging and some of the information and some of the petitions and campaigns that are out there are not quite getting to these root causes and changing some of the systemic structures that are in place to make things the way that they are. Mm -hmm. 
you know, I got to do a lot of really cool development work. So looking at global health, global development through a food systems lens. So I, I taught beekeeping in Haiti as a project in school. And I taught English in Ecuador and worked directly with small shareholder farmer families there and have had really cool opportunities to work in Ethiopia through my work at General Mills on small and growing dairy companies on innovation projects. All of that accumulated in I didn't grow up on a farm, but I've now seen supply chains and agricultural sectors and all different levels of low and middle income all the way to wealthy countries. And there's this common thread for me, which is there is a necessity of trade-offs that have to be made just to produce food for people. And we can definitely minimize them, but we're never going to replace them entirely. So when people ask me about cell-based, like, do you see a world in which there are no animals consumed in any capacity in 10 years? The answer is no. That's not the way the world is going to be able to move simultaneously and coordinated. And we have to be realistic about what are the in-between spaces that we can get comfortable enough and push the technology to get there without trying to bowl over you know, the culture and societal factors that are built around so many of these problems. And that's where I do get a little like feisty and frustrated with the broader industry is like, this isn't something that happens overnight. There's huge momentum. It's incredibly exciting to see that, but we can't expect to change cultural and societal norms on a dime because it's what we want to see happen. Yeah, absolutely. I've had this conversation with a lot of folks. I've built my career in, in tech advocacy, so we've done a lot of lobbying. And one thing that I have learned, if nothing else, is that you're never going to convince a legislator to take any action that is going to put their constituents <laughs> out of work. Yep. And, yep. That, and that is the reality. And so with that challenge also comes the opportunity to create giant, you know, biomilks and, and companies out there to, to make these amazing new future jobs. But until we have the ability to both transition people into those jobs or transition them out of these jobs into somewhere else where they're still going to be able to make a living, we're not going to be able to take down the structure that is in place. Employment and quality of life is incredibly important. Yeah. Yeah. And it's always the natural trade-off between planetary boundaries and raising the bottom rung of humanity. Like we talk a lot about nutritionally, right? That there is some inherent trade-off you have to make between protecting people or protecting planet. And every policy has to be run down the middle to some extent, because you really can't prioritize one or the other because it's immoral in one direction or the other if you swing too far one way or one, you know, the opposite direction. So it is incredibly nuanced. It's really challenging, but it's one of the reasons working on biomilk specifically is kind of the dream because we do really get to kind of thread the needle down the middle about how we think about solving these huge macro issues without having to directly pick sides. Are people more important or the planet that we live on? Yeah. All right. So let's take it back a second. You mentioned a little bit of your work at General Mills and going over to Ethiopia and places like that. I mean, that is a tremendous experience. So how did you go from food science working on Lara bars? And is it Lara bar or Lara bar? Lara bar. Lara bar. Lara American founder originally. Lara. Yeah. Lara. Okay. So Lara bar, what was that experience like? And that was your last position before jumping into being a founder. Yeah. Yeah. General Mills was the dream company, being from Minneapolis, where they're headquartered. They're one of the friendlier big CPGs, I would say, out there. And I was really lucky that I was one of the only scientists they hired without a master's into an R&D scientist level role, one of the first and last, unfortunately. And it meant that I got kind of the bottom of the barrel job that nobody wanted because I was newer and younger and didn't have as much experience as other folks. And so I was put on the convenience and food service desk for all of dairy products throughout North America and much of the world, which is actually a massive responsibility to give a brand new grad out of school. I'm not sure what anybody was thinking, but like I was the scientist that worked on everything from gogurt outside of the home, like at McDonald's, all the way to all of the yogurt that school kids eat 
at school or at colleges and prisons, all, you know, hospitals, pretty much everywhere. So it's not sexy. I didn't get to work on products that anybody knew about. They're all back of house They, You know, I wasn't able to go on a shelf and be like, look at what I worked on, but it had an outsized impact on not just the business, but on people. And the projects that really I loved were the things that I got to think about. How are we reducing sugar, going to natural flavors, natural colors, and changing a starch profile to be vegan on different products, right? And how are we thinking about being able to fit into the diets of people when they're outside of the home? You know, one of my projects I worked on was creating the lowest sugar yogurt that existed in the company for school kids, which was technologically really challenging and involved a lot of fermentation science and product development and and actually equipment design that like most people would never have gotten the opportunity to work on something like that. But because this was the role that nobody liked to work on because it wasn't fun or cool meant that I got to do everything. And that meant that work really advanced my career quite quickly. It was clear that I was pretty good at seeing a big picture challenge and creating action and inspiring action in other people to get there on fast timelines and through adversity. And so at the same time, I was allowed to spend about 10% of my time with uh, Partners in Food Solutions, which is a nonprofit that a lot of the big food companies let technical talent donate their time to for pro bono consulting. And so that's where I was working with them, mainly in Ethiopia. I was a country lead working directly with small and growing businesses in the dairy sector. So I I went to Addis Ababa and taught a dairy quality seminar to basically 95% African males and just a few females in the room through a translator and had the opportunity to go see a number of my projects on the ground and take, you know, small family owned companies from good manufacturing practice basics, like everybody needs to wear boots and you need screens on your windows to keep pests out of products, you know, things that we take for granted here in the US, all the way to, you know, how do we create shelf stable production lines so you can actually translate moving these products without a cold chain throughout the entire country. And that work became increasingly more inspiring and more impactful and just significantly more meaningful to me than another strawberry yogurt. (laughs) And I had a specific opportunity. So it was December, I think 2017. I, we had, you know, had a new White House changeover and USAID funding was basically all frozen. And I had to tell a client that we had made this really beautiful and amazing plan for that it wasn't going to happen. There wasn't funding to do it. And I just been agonizing over telling Kirut was her name. And um, Ethiopians by nature are very like staid and stoic and very like even keeled, I would say. And so I started to tell her this and she like cut me off and was yelling. I mean, truly yelling at the translator in Amharic. And I'm like, oh my God, I'm going to get it. Like this poor woman, like I promised her the world and I have to tell her it's not going to happen. And it came to light that I had made this random suggestion at the conference I had taught the year before about a number of the dairy owners collaborating to get night milk chillers so they could collect milk 24 hours a day rather than only during daylight hours, which is what they've been doing previously, which you get pretty terrible quality and adulteration challenges. And they had gotten a grant for it. And they were going to build 100 of these milk chillers throughout Ethiopia in the next few years. And she was going to be busy helping revolutionize the dairy industry there. And I'm not a huge crier, but I literally broke down into deep sobs on the call. And, you know, thanked her profusely and she thanked me and it was this beautiful moment. And I hung up and I started Googling, how do you have a social impact career in food? (laughs) Like, how does one do this as a daily career? I don't know what job I want, but I want it to feel like this every single day. How do I get that? How do I find that? Which sounds so millennial, but is genuinely what happened and, and was really changed the trajectory of my career. And that's that particular moment is what inspired me to apply in the last possible moment in the final round to go to business school. That's incredible. So that experience in Ethiopia, do you feel like you were treated any differently as 
as a woman that was coming from the US. It was insane. I was teaching, you know, fundamental microbiology. I was talking through, you know, checking for adulteration and quality, processing equipment. I mean, things that I was very well versed here in the US, but was a pretty junior scientist, to be honest, to like professors in Ethiopia that are teaching dairy science, you know, and things that it was like, you probably know way more than I do and have significantly deeper hands-on experience than I ever could in my career. But they were so kind and empathetic and uh, excited to learn. Like the first day, I remember being really nervous. And I was like, I can't believe it's going to be me and, you know, 80 African men in a room learning about dairy for four days. You know, like who decided this was a good idea? And by the end of it, I mean, after every talk, you know, we'd be there for like six hours a day and they'd come up and have all these questions or all these, you know, notes or things they wanted to learn more about. And, you know, I'd be able to connect them with resources at Purdue or University of Wisconsin or some of these other institutions here in the U.S. to learn more. And it was so beautiful because they were seeing the potential of a sector changing nutrition in their country. They were there because they were leaders in their sector and knew that they had a lot to grow in still. And, not everything from a Western world was going to be applicable, but there was still so much to learn that they were excited to learn about that we got to have conversations about like, you're never going to get a cold chain here. We're 40 years out from a sustainable cold chain at this rate, unless China picks it up and builds it basically. You know, it was, I literally had some, a question phrased at this at the conference. And so it was like, so how do you get around that? And then being able for us to spitball in real time about, okay, I've brought this from a very Western view of here's what you need to be able to build the perfect food system, which is not perfect. Let's throw that out the window, right? And take the fundamentals of what I'm going to talk to you about today and think about how does it apply in this different environment, a different world. And that's what the work that everyone in the cellular agriculture plant-based field is doing now, right? Is saying like, okay, the fundamental rules of food science, of food or of nutrition are the same country to country across the world, but we have to adapt and we have to be thoughtful about how this applies within the sociocultural context and within the technological progress of a country. And in some ways we can leapfrog and not create the ills of the past and never have to even worry about some of the adverse effects. And in other ways we have to be really creative in how we think about solving problems when you don't have all the perfect tools to get there. So there's the plant base and the cell base. So for this purpose. Let's talk about the cell base. Do you think that in terms of the scalability and the solutions that cell base can provide, is this something that's going to be more for the West? Or do you think that there are cell based solutions for other parts of the world as well, especially developing nations? Yeah. So this gets to actually my last experience that we haven't touched on, which was my time at the Bill Melinda Gates Foundation in their nutrition private sector partnerships team. Because my stated project goal was how do we think about creating sustainable supply chains for good sources of protein in low and middle income countries that experience high levels of stunting in children, stunting and wasting. And I went through and vetted a whole bunch of different technologies across, you know, mycotechnology and fermentation and uh, aquatic plants and uh, and and cell-based and indigenous supply chains and, and all kinds of things. And cell-based is 10 years out from where that's ever going to be in an applicability of trying to really reduce stunting, especially in the lowest income populations of our world. And honestly, it's one of the things that stresses me out about the most in participating in this part of the fields. You know, most of my work has been really centered around how do we help people? And Absolutely. All of these cell-based products are going to help people in different parts of the world, but it's going to be a long time until anyone can truly scale down the cost or scale up the supply chain to be fitting in other parts of the world. And it's probably not going to come directly from the Western world and just be translated one for one. I can tell you from my work in taking dairy plants, even it's, it's not, it's not an equivalent curve, right? So 
we really do have to think about how do we build access into all of these models from the beginning. Um, and it's actually for anyone who's interested in joining the Cell Agri End of Year Summit, it's, it's what my talk's going to be about, which is how do we build a just and equal supply chain using cellular agriculture? And how do we think about not just scaling to this high zenith in a wealthy country and then trying to bring the price down to reach lower and middle income countries, but instead think about how do we build models and partnerships and collaborations where we address all of the societal and cultural factors that go into these problems and come in not as I am a cell-based company and I'm going to solve for you the supply chain, but instead I'm going to work with these five or six other partners, institutions to create a solution that fits this market. And that's where I think we naturally are going to continue to see a lot of tension because that's not what investors necessarily really want to invest in. They want to invest in product market fit in a wealthy country and then just see it get cheaper. But that's not how the world works. And that's not how we're going to create the impact we want to see in this world. Today's podcast is sponsored by LeapGrow. LeapGrow is a group of freelance premium growth marketers. We take ownership over your conversion funnel, product positioning, growth targets, paid channels, and strategy. We only work with a small number of companies we feel personally invested in. It sounds weird, but actually caring about our clients and stopping at nothing to drive their success is what makes us unique. To learn more about LeapGrow, go to leapgrow.co. Well, that's the difference between you know, looking at the bottom line and looking at the true impact and how you can maximize that impact, right? So just, and then we can get into the actual biomilk story because I think this is an amazing lead up. And by the way, Michelle, if there's a link to that talk, I will share it out with this when this does air. Do you think that some of these countries that are in these developing parts of the world are going to leapfrog in terms of regulations around cell base? Because that's the elephant in the room right now. You know, Singapore says yes, and Israel's got their, their leader trying it. But do you think these other parts of the world will just embrace it much quicker than, than some of these parts in, in North America and the EU and, and all the other places? Maybe. And for certain products, it makes sense. For biomilk specifically, it's harder because we're feeding the most precious beings on the planet. And so milk looks a little different, just human milk specifically. And so when we think about where there's trust, whether it's deserved or not, it's in the regulatory systems of more developed countries. So I, I do, you know, it's exciting to see other parts of the world embrace it. And I hope it gives the EU and US a good jab to be like, get your stuff together and work a little harder here to try to figure this out. But, you know, regulatory is such a complex set of decisions. And I think as biotech entrepreneurs, we always say regulatory is kind of like, oh, and then there's regulatory. But those policies exist to protect people. And at the end of the day, we should all want to see people protected at the best that we can as companies and individuals. And so, you know, I frequently get asked, like, are you so excited to see technology in the food sector? And I'm like, no, well, we don't all die from all kinds of enteric diseases because we have food safety practices, which was the last revolution, I would say, in the food sector and industry. Did it create harm too in the fact that we moved to more standardized factory farming and processing? Absolutely. But like we all can eat the foods that we eat without fearing for our own health because of technology in the sector. And likewise, I think when we look at cell-based and we look at plant-based, there's a lot of proof that has to happen to show that these are the right innovations being done in the right ethical ways. And there are other parts of the world that may not have as many qualms about checking all the boxes. And I think we can see, you know, distrust or fear in vaccines and other things as a pretty good example and proxy for you don't really want anyone to doubt whether your regulatory process was done appropriately or not. The moment consumers can't trust in the science, your products are dead in the water. So we all have to kind of play by the rules that they exist and influence those who make the rules to reconsider for the future what that will look like for this technology sector. Yeah, absolutely. We have, I think the most recent survey in the US is 30% of folks don't 
trust the COVID vaccine when it's going to come. Yep. And it's, um, you know, rightly so, right? And to some extent, I, I believe in it. I trust it. I'm a scientist and so excited to see that how fast the biotech sector moved. I can't believe we did this in a year, but it's amazing. It's the feat of a humanity. That's something that I really, everybody that's listening should understand that these intense moments of scarcity and these emergencies, this is when true innovation that leapfrogs the entire planet forward happens. And we are watching it happen in real time. And I even, I'm a strong proponent of like capitalism is bad when not directed appropriately, hence social impact and social entrepreneurship. But the fact that capitalism has been able to spur innovation like this and collaboration in some ways, I mean, this is why you want your industrial pharmaceutical sectors to compete, because when they compete, they can do astounding things. I mean, things that truly are going to transform our situation today. So I'll get off my soapbox. But needless to say, science is amazing. People who understand it absolutely believe in it. But it's also really complicated and hard to understand. And people who can translate complicated science into understandable terms are few and far between in a lot of ways. And so I don't blame people for having concerns or having fears. They're hearing a lot in the media about vaccines or about other parts of science. And that will bleed over into some ways in the way that people look at biotech or lab grown. You know, we saw the art installation or art piece, of course, in the last week of, you know, human based steak being consumed and some crazy stuff that people are having some reactions to, in part because scientific communications are hard. And I don't think anyone is doing a particularly good job at making it an inclusive field for people who may not have had the training or understanding to really get what we're working on. Yeah. And we also live in a world with increasingly polarized news outlets. You know, we're in a very difficult time right now because while we have all of the science accelerating, We also are at probably the worst moment in terms of technology and what it looks like to actually go into these platforms and ensure that we are putting out real and accurate information. I don't think anyone has a solution for that. There's Senate hearings happening as we speak right now talking about this. So it remains to be seen what they do next there. Let's get into the bio. How did you come up with the idea and what did it take from that moment in your head to actually getting on some sort of investor's desk and, and pitching? Like, how did you do that? What was that process like? So Layla's the true innovator, my CSO. She's been working on milk outside of the body since 2013 and been working in cellular agriculture before it was cool <laughs> to some extent. She was a newly breastfeeding mom that was struggling as a PhD cell biologist sitting in a closet alone at Stanford going, there has to be a better way. I don't understand how I can be incredibly educated and solve basically every problem and my own body is betraying me. And it's just cellular function, which I've studied for a decade, right? How can we not do this outside of the body? And so, you know, she rented a small lab space in Research Triangle Park here in North Carolina and is the reason we started here in NC and has been working, you know, would go to the slaughterhouse and get a warm udder off the line and dissect it for tissue and really just an astounding, amazing innovator in a way that continued to work on a problem where people here, especially in the Southeast of the United States, thought she was truly a crazy person to even consider or think about. And so I had the opportunity through a mutual friend that came out of the Gates Foundation and was kind of trying to think on, gosh, I don't want to go back to corporate America. What does it look like for me to participate in some other part of the sector? And, and startups really even weren't on my radar. I'm like, oh, I'm going to found a company. It was like, I just want to find something that I can feel good about applying my technical and business skills to make positive change in this world. And a mutual friend was like, I know this crazy lady who's making milk outside of the body. Do you want to meet her? Exact quote on the intro. Always yes. Always, yes. My new favorite part of this story is like, if anybody ever says like crazy, insane, zany, quirky, kooky, as a part of an intro, you should always accept it because you never know what you're going to find, but it's going to be exciting either way. 
and met Layla. And it was clear, you know, her passion and alignment was really around women's health and women's empowerment, utilizing this as a tool to think about how we create better equality between parents and between men and women in the workplace and benefit babies is a part of that. And my passion really came from the leverage points of infant nutrition specifically on the outcomes it can have for humanity and development, which is where my our global health, global development, good source of protein kind of world had come from. And we were kind of a match made in heaven. You know, I understood the CPG side of the world and the business and the food science and acceptability and consumer work, like all of that had been my world for a very long time, plus the international kind of aid and human development space and components. And then Layla was this hardcore badass, if I'm allowed to say that, female scientist who knew what to do, technologically deeply understood this space probably better than anyone else and continually better than anybody else. And she just needed someone to help this vision come to life. So about a year ago today, actually, we were sitting in a coffee shop here in Durham, North Carolina, desperately trying to get through a grant application that was due at 5 p.m. We were there like literally 10 hours straight. We were laughing about this week because we're both procrastinators and clearly can't do things on time. Thank God we have other people on our team now that keep us on track. And we went from being kind of like, oh, this is kind of a fun project we're working on to like, we're Biomilk. We're a company and we're going to take a run at this. And, you know, we have to like, Layla had quit her full-time cushy job and I was getting ready to graduate. And it was like, well, we have to either make it work or I guess join the real world and not get to see the world as we want it to be. And so it was really personal for us. It really felt like we were fighting for women and we were fighting for humanity and that we had to show investors and partners that this was not only possible, but had the potential to change the world. And I think in our passion and our backgrounds and our personalities, it was really clear that like we deeply believe this is the wave of the future and that people like us have to be at the beginning of the charge to make sure that it's done sustainably and ethically. What was it like the first time that you wrote Biomilk out with the Q and it was a real company? Do you remember that feeling? <laughs> yes. So it's interesting, actually, because when we first wrote it, I always write it in caps because for some reason it looks weird to me in high uppercase B and lowercase letters, which has kind of stuck now because of me. But Layla had always written it differently. So I remember like the even a light disagreement over like, doesn't that Q look weird? Like that makes me feel like uh, at the time there were like mink or whatever, which were those like portable smoking cartridges. And I was like, I don't want to be associated with that. It makes me uncomfortable. Like there were all these like weird little things that popped up. And so it didn't really feel like a business until we got our own email addresses, which is such a laughable thing to say. But I remember like creating a signature. We were like, oh, maybe we should have matching signatures or like at least have some of the same information and started to send out emails to talk to mentors and advisors. And that was the moment where it was like, oh, wow, we, we're a company, I guess. And we're incorporated now. And we, you know, now we just have to find some money to actually make this thing happen. But, you know, we had the business plans and we put together all the commercialization and strategy work. And that part was easy because that's what we were passionate about. Then the next question was like, oh, shit, how does somebody raise money and actually like make this happen? So how did you do it? Do you remember? Tell me your first pitch presentation. How did it go? So painful. So painful. We met with a guy in San Francisco at a WeWork just at the beginning, like January. So it was like just at the beginning of weirdness, like people were starting to talk about virus, but it hadn't really happened yet. And it's the last time like any of us had traveled and the pitch went fine. He like didn't want to see any slides. So I just talked through it, which is fine. I'm not really a slides person anyway. And Layla, as always, swimmingly answered her technical questions because that is her world. And she had been getting better and better at synthesizing quickly what exactly she was trying to say. And we got to the end of it and he was like, great, send me your VDR. And I was like, what is a VDR do you say? I mean, I literally said it like that because 
Yeah, I was like, I mean, I'm a pretty like you learn in public. Everybody doesn't know what they don't know. And it's okay to admit when you don't know it. But even I was a little like, well, I'm just going to say it because I'm not going to be like, yeah, yeah, I'll send you my VDR. Cool, cool. See you on the golf course because that's not me. And so I was like, what is a VDR? And he was like, oh, a virtual data room. And I was like, I don't have one of those, but I will make it and I will send it to you. And I did. And, you know, then from there, it got easier and easier. Layla and I got better at, I think, explaining the core of the why and the how rather than just the what much more quickly. And we were pretty clear and upfront about we're not here to make money, like point blank, which is not something you're supposed to tell investors, but it quickly vetted who believed in the mission and the organization and the belief that this will be profitable because we are solving a problem that needs to be solved and that this technology should be in the world because it has potential for change, not I see a quick exit in three years and I'll spin it and put it in another company because that's not where we're going to be. And so, you know, we had some growing pains of like pitching to people who clearly were not a good fit and we ignored the red flags for too long or trying to mold ourselves or give data information that didn't really fit what we wanted to be. And I would say pretty quickly, it became clear who were good allies and who understood what we were talking about and the possibilities versus who was really worried about the implications. Did you find yourself speaking to a lot of people in the plant or cell-based space? And if so, was there a difference between investors and their focus? Or did you just go for any investors kind of totally out there? Did you have a focus? Yeah, so we were very focused on mission alignment. We really didn't want to talk to anybody who didn't care about at least one of the three of our kind of core areas, which is women's empowerment, infant nutrition and health or sustainability. And if you didn't have any touch on any of those, you weren't going to be a good fit for us because you weren't really going to get what we were about to spend 20 minutes talking about. And we were pretty clear that we wanted to be well involved with the food sector, but didn't feel the need to be deeply tied into the typical players. Like, we were interested in some of them, but you know, a lot of companies in the space, I think are often looking for like, oh, I want the same investor as Mosa Meats, or I want the same investor as you know Memphis, or like they really want to be a part of the cool kids club. And we really didn't care. We, we really wanted to find investors that we felt would support us, that understood the issues that we were trying to solve and believed in the technology and the potential for it. So we talked to lots of people. We actually ended up with a lead much more focused in sustainability than food, ag and tech, I would say. We spoke a lot to groups in women's health and health tech and in that space because we're very much a kind of borderline product, food as medicine, women's empowerment, women's health space. And we were looking for partners with specific skills rather than sectoral mandates that really guided the way that they invested. Do you think that there's something to the fact that so many of this, this is going to be the worst pun, new crop of cell-based companies are led by women? So, you know, your originals, your Memphis, your Mosa, you know, all those are all male leaders, but there does appear to be this new crop of women leaders that are popping up all over the world, you know, in China and in the US and Singapore. Do you think there's something to that? Absolutely. I think female scientists, especially female technical leaders, have always been looking for more meaning in the science that they do because they don't always fit in in the grind of being in a male-dominated field. So when you're already kind of put on the outs a little bit and you have this maybe even a little chip on your shoulder of like, I'm always the only woman in lab meeting or I'm always the only woman in this or I'm always the only woman talking about that. There is some level where you start to say, okay, well, if I'm always going to be on the outside anyway, what do I care about science to do? What does science mean to me? If I'm not going to be first author on every paper, screw them. 
why don't I worry about the other applicability of my technology or of my space or of my passion? And I think because of that resiliency, because of that direction of thought, and because a lot of women do have a kind of a higher calling in some ways of trying to see something better for people around them by the work that they do. I'd say that men don't, but a lot of women do. It's a natural fit for a lot of technical women in this space to be like, screw academia. <laughs> I'm not going to sit here and be a PhD that doesn't rise in the department as quickly because I'm not a man. And instead, I'm going to say, what else can I do with this? How else can I change the world? And biotech and food tech in this space is a really good fit for a lot of us. So yeah, I think women and I think you start to see, you know, disadvantaged entrepreneurs from around the world. You know, we're looking at different socioeconomic backgrounds, different races, different experiences, different education levels starting to pop out of the woodwork in some of these spaces. And I think it's not surprising because this food system is incredibly filled with hierarchy and power. And there are a lot of people that I think when you look at the institutions of it can say, this is going to change a lot of the dynamics of power that we see in this world, if we can adjust it to be how we want. And um, women tend to lead the charge in that space a lot of the time. That has absolutely been our experience because I had a podcast yesterday I was speaking on and they were talking about how is it that women can just continually face so many barriers, but they keep going. Where did they get that from? And I think that's because women have, there's something else that drives women. It's not about making money. Making money is great because quite honestly, you can use that money to do more impact with it. But I don't think that that's the bottom line for most of the women that are in the space. No. And, and even I think, women more broadly, you know, they're went to a top 10 MBA program, right? There are greedy people, male and female, right? There's always some select part of the population that they're there to get a big fancy banking job and be damned if you get in their way. Yeah, right. A nice car, fancy shoes. God, the shoes that I saw at school that it was like, I don't, I don't even understand. <laughs> but I think even women in that field, you know, a more traditionally trained business field, not even technical, most of them were significantly more active, for instance, in supporting other people in the school and as lead in leaders and a lot of the student-led organizations. Many of them were a part of Net Impact Club. Net Impact was one of the largest clubs at my business school, which is very focused on social impact and entrepreneurship. And that was driven by the fact that the 40% of the class was female and they were basically all in Net Impact. And, you know, you see even some of my closer friends from school go off and, you know, they're taking big, bad banker jobs, but they're doing green deals or they came out of education and they're working on, you know, shoring up infrastructure and they still have really high powered, traditional, greedy careers, but are multifaceted people that bring all of their experiences and care to what they're doing. And I trust them a lot more working at Goldman Sachs than I do the average dude working at Goldman Sachs. Oh, we need to infiltrate everyone. It's the agenda. Don't tell anyone. <laughs> Absolutely. That's what VWS is for. We're here to find women in every sect of the world and give them the ability and teach them and empower them how they can bring compassion to their career because we can have an influence no matter where we are, whether you're founding a company or whether you are that person at the Fortune 500 company that is changing your company policies, there is a way for you to move the message forward and to move things forward to a better place. Yeah. Yeah. And we're at an interesting time right now, an interesting crossroads where stakeholder capitalism is becoming not so weird to talk about, you know, instead of just shareholder. And it's a little more in vogue to talk about the things that even a couple of years ago when I started business school were not at all cool. <laughs> or we're like pretty tip of the spear. You were pretty hippy dippy and people like wonder if you hugged trees too. And like, that's not the world increasingly. And I think it is becoming more and more normal to say you're allowed to bring your passions and beliefs and cares to the work that you do and try to find impact in everything 
that we work on in this world. Because at the end of the day, especially in Western countries, whether it's good or not, like we work, you know, live to work, right? Like we love what we do. We want to be feel passionate about what we're working on. We give a huge amount of our life to it. And so I hope that most people look at that and say, all right, what do I want my legacy to be is what I'm doing, even if it's not necessarily in a traditional sector where people would applaud the work that's being done. Because if we don't have institutional change in all of these sectors, um, it doesn't matter how cool the tech or science is, it, it won't create the change that we as founders want to see. Absolutely. All right. So I have one last question about the founder experience. I would love to know what is the biggest mistake you think you've made so far? And what did you learn from it? Biggest mistake I've made so far, I think, is taking things really personally. I am my harshest critic. And I knew that going into this. I One of the skills that I had been cultivating for the last few years was learning to let go when I make mistakes or when I perceive that I've made mistakes and learning to let go of things that bother me. I'm still not great at it, to be honest. But I think early on, I felt things really personally, like I had failed or I had to do this or I had to fix it. And not thinking about that this is a team, this is a big environment of people trying to work on this space. You know, you're not going to solve something single-handedly overnight. And I was pretty hard on myself at various times about like, oh, that pitch did not go well. You should have done better. And instead of, I think, moving on more quickly and saying, yep, you messed that up. Wasn't great. How are you going to improve? I think I kicked myself for a lot longer than I should have. And in some ways we could have moved even faster and just more healthfully for everyone's involvement if we had kind of cut through the bullshit a little bit more quickly. And some of that comes from my natural insecurity as being maybe not even just a female founder, but a younger female founder. I mean, I just turned 28 in October. And I think some of the time there is some imposter syndrome of like, maybe I'm not the right person to do this or like, God, you messed it up again, Michelle. Clearly you're not the one who's supposed to be handling this part of it or talking about that. And the truth is nobody really knows exactly how to do everything. And it's really challenging. It's actually funny on this call. So I'm wearing like basically no makeup in part because I was on my corporate coaching call. I have a fabulous mentor who's coached me for a couple of years and I was crying on the call, which again, I'm not a huge crier. So he was like, are you okay by the end of the call? But we were talking about the fact that one of the things I worry a lot about is that I'm a driver. I push people really hard. I have really high expectations of myself and others. And I care so deeply. I mean, I really plan deeply for everyone on my team, all of my friends, all my family, anyone in relative care in my world, once you're in, you're in, but I'm not incredibly empathetic always. I'm up in the big picture of things and I'm not a very good listener, for instance. And I know in myself that I'm not a warm and fuzzy person. My passion and my compassion comes through, but I'm not the person you call to just be like, oh, I've had a really rough day because I'm always trying to get you to the solution or get you to fix it or help see how I can make it better. And it's a coping mechanism of myself, but it's definitely an area that I think I need to have been gentler on myself in the past and need to continue to be gentler in the future of I'm not perfect. That's okay. And no one expects or wants me to be because then I wouldn't really be me. I totally feel you on the problem solver piece. I think that's my lot in life, right? And I get people all the time that are just like, Jenny, I just wanted to tell you about how I was feeling. And here I am with three or four different solutions. I'm creating like an action plan. That is totally me. And it's endless. It's even like my poor boyfriend. He'll be like, he'll come from work and be like, this went wrong and that went wrong. And I'm like, well, you should talk to this person. You should do this. And he's like, I don't want solver, Michelle. Like, I just want you to listen 
make good eye contact, make reassuring noises, and then have a good comment at the end. Like, I don't want you to fix it. I don't want you to get distracted and be thinking about something else because you know you can't fix it. Like I just, not everything is something to solve. And I think naturally, especially as women who want to see this dramatic change and want to create this new world, we're always hustling. We're always pushing. We're always trying to get everybody to be the best they can so that we can create this, this utopia that we're dreaming of, right? And at the end of the day, like people are people. And sometimes you all just need to sit down and be like, that was shitty. That was really, really shitty. And like, let's wallow in this for 10 minutes. And I'm not a good wallower. So I think I, in many ways, I push myself really hard. I push the people around me really hard. And uh, my 2021 goal is to work on my more humanity, empathetic side and be a more intentional leader about being there for people and not expecting them to push themselves into something of a version that I want them to be, even though they'll get there just on their own time. So one of the ways that my husband and I figured out how to communicate because he is much more on the emotional side is we reference the Sims bars, you know, the little like social meter, the this one meter. And so tell me, I'd be like, this meter is running low. I just really need some help on this meter. I'm like, oh, okay. I get what you're looking for. <laughs> it's funny though, but when you create these little ways for yourself to think about what you're taking in, you know, just those little tricks, yeah. they really help me because I'll do the same thing. My instinct is like, fix everything, fix everything. We got it. We can't waste a moment, but sometimes just letting the bar refill. That's all you need to do. Yeah. Yeah. And especially as leaders and companies that are moving really fast or organizations that are moving really fast and growing. And, you know, there's so much expectation of like, we always have to be moving. We always have to be developing. We always have to be productive and creative and pushing. And like, I'm just not as good at the rest of the like restorative, restive, empathetic, you know, regenerative builder. And it's not to say, you know, I do meditation, I do yoga, I sit outside and look at the woods. It's not like I don't have these self-care practices, but I'm not as good, I think, at reaffirming and reasserting how important they are and how vital they are until often I'm sobbing on the phone with a coach and he's like, you clearly need to get to the root of this. Like, let's spend our time here today. Yeah. I think that's what burnout is, right? That is when you've kind of depleted yourself and there's a reason regenerate has the word generate in it. Yeah. So it's always a journey. And I think the important thing to note is, you know, I do a lot of these interviews and I always just try to be me. And I'm sure people are like, wow, this girl's a hot mess because semi-frequently every interview comes to where I'm like, well, I don't have all the answers. I don't know what's going on. I frequently fail. I'm not easygoing. I'm not, you know, a classic, just like happy-go-lucky personality, but seeing where I need to tilt into some of those areas and where I need to balance out my drive is important, but we're also successful founders in part because that's what we strive for. And what we drive to is, is really creating the change we want to see. So it's always a balancing act and I don't have it all solved, but anyone who ever wants to talk about it or learn more or just complain about how hard it is, that's the complaining I can do. And I'm always happy to talk about it. Absolutely. So the last thing I'm going to ask you is uh, the VWS community is very much comprised of many, many women that are either in the plant-based sector, in the cell-based sector, or perhaps people coming into the space and learning about the sectors. And so I'd love for you to just leave off for for those that are vegans or coming to it from a compassionate lens, what would your pitch of BioMilk be to them and, and how we are going to build a more sustainable, kinder world? And then for those that aren't in that sphere of things, why should they care about biomilk and what you're building? Yeah, biomilk is kind of the perfect opportunity to talk about sustainability without having to sell someone on sustainability. We talk about that this is a better product for babies and it's going to empower and enrich women's lives and it happens to be good for the planet. So I think for both categories, it's the same pitch, which is 
you know, the world has some really consumptive technologies or sectors right now. And it's great that there are many people addressing these spaces, but we have to find products where we're still selling on what people need a problem to be solved for, not just that it's better for the planet. And a company like Biomilk, we really get to relish in living in that we're solving a fundamentally challenging issue for basically every woman on this planet. And it happens to protect the planet for future generations to inherit. So we feel really lucky that we get to work on something that is so universal and so important to so many people. And like every good cause or innovation or change, it's going to be a multifaceted approach at at coming to the solution that works best for everyone and are excited to have anyone who is excited about any of the parts of our impact or mission on board, because it's not as though we're just solving a one point problem. Yeah, absolutely. And the the dairy sector for infant formula, that's got to be pretty remarkable. It's almost all dairy right now, right? Yeah, it's almost all dairy. And honestly, the plant-based or vegan forms nutritionally, I mean, those first early six months are so important that, you know, being a vegan by choice as a, you know, adolescent or adult is not as big of a deal. But in your early development phases, we really haven't optimized yet plant protein or plant nutrients to really, truly mimic the value of milk, especially. And so that's where I get really excited to be able to think about, you know, a family is making an incredible trade-off to use vegan infant formula right now is really missing out on a lot of the fundamental vital nutrients for development. And their kids will be just fine. They're going to grow up to be amazing people because of other factors. But can we give them a product where they don't have to think about those trade-offs anymore? And that's a really exciting space to be able to help keep someone's food beliefs fully committed and on the appropriate level of belief and rigor that it should be without having to sacrifice. That's really when we'll get to a place where tech has truly bettered people's lives. Absolutely. Michelle, it's been amazing. Thank you so much for spending the hour with me telling your journey, your story. There's so much inspiration in here. I'm so glad that we had the opportunity to do this and, you know, happy to have any other interactions in the future with VWS. We really support your organization and see that it will have such hopefully catalytic potential, even more than it already has for women in the sector, out of the sector and around the world. Thanks for joining us for today's Pathfinders podcast. I hope you'll rate and subscribe to follow more conversations like today. If you want to learn more about how to get involved with VWS, please check out veganwomensummit.com or follow us on Facebook, LinkedIn, or Instagram with at veganwomensummit and on Twitter with at vegwomensummit. Don't worry, you can find the links in the show notes. We're building a global community of women dedicated to creating a kinder, more sustainable world. Powered by CEOs, investors, celebrities, Olympians, and more, our events and media platform reaches thousands of women every day across six continents. We'd love your support. You can reach out to sponsor this podcast and more at veganwomensummit.com slash sponsors. See you next time.